chapter 20, and it'll be helpful to keep it open as we come to study this next portion in our series in the life of Abraham. Entitled our sermon this morning, Familiar Failures, Faithful God. Familiar Failures, Faithful God. I can't believe this has happened again. I wonder, have you said that to yourself in the last month, the last week, maybe even in the last few hours? Have you said it when you listen to the news or open your newspaper and some slimy celebrity or politician is in the headlines for yet another bit of bad behaviour? <coughs> Have you said it when yet another new law is proposed that flies in the face of God's laws in Scripture? More to the point for our purposes today, have you said it or thought it about yourself after falling into the same sin yet again? Well, if you have, you're by no means alone. All of us here this morning at some point have that sinking feeling of realising that as much as we thought we were past some particular sin, as much as we've been praying perhaps even about doing battle with some particular sin, we're left Discouraged, realizing that we've committed it yet again. It's an experience that even the Apostle Paul could relate to. We read earlier there, Romans 7, verse 19 I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. There's even the great Apostle, absolutely frustrated, tired of these sins that he wrestles with and longing to be rid of them completely at last. How can we be rid of them? Well, Paul goes on to say, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul lived with familiar failures, but he had a faithful and gracious God, a God whose grace was even more powerful than Paul's sin. And we see today that that was exactly the experience of Abraham as well. This is another passage, as many of the passages at this stage of Genesis R, showing us just how human Abraham was. He's our father in faith. He's also our father in failure. As much as we live in a culture that encourages us to excuse our failures or to minimize our failures or not really to think in terms of failure, culture that tells our children from their earliest days that we're all winners and hands out participation trophies and tells us how wonderful we are, the reality is We are moral failures. We are made with great dignity and value and worth because we're made in the image of God, but we are sinful, fallen image bearers of God. Yet the good news of the gospel is that we can still be called sons of God. We can receive God's grace to forgive us for all our failures. And this is a case study of of those truths here that we have in Genesis 20 this morning. I want to think first of all today from this passage about the reality of regular sin. The reality of regular or habitual sin, sins of habit. If you remember we left Abraham in chapter 18. He was mentioned briefly in chapter 19. But in chapter 18 we saw him at a real spiritual high point in his life. You remember the Lord God came to Abraham's tent door along with two angels and Abraham provided wonderful hospitality for them and they they had a meal together and at the end of that meal God again promised Abraham and Sarah his wife that they're going to have a son 
That miraculously, even at the ages of 190, God is going to keep the covenant promises that he made to these two. And he's going to give them a son in about a year's time. And we then saw also in chapter 18 how Abraham pleaded with God in prayer for the city of Sodom. That's the the second half of Genesis chapter 18. And in Genesis chapter 19 verse 29 we're told that God remembered Abraham. That God had listened to Abraham's prayers and even though there weren't ten righteous people to save in Sodom. Nonetheless God did rescue Lot out of the city of Sodom before it was destroyed. So really in chapters 18 and 19 we see Abraham as a man who is enjoying a very close walk with the Lord. In some ways a literally close walk with the Lord who had shown up to his door. But then we come to him here again in chapter 20. And we can probably hardly believe what we read. That he's committing the same sin that we saw him commit years later. And he was rebuked for it at the time and he was... He was, uh, he, he was convicted of it at the time and he was embarrassed by it at the time. And yet here he is committing the same sin again. You remember back in Genesis 12 verses 10 to 20, Abraham decided to go down to Egypt. And sometimes, as I've said before, that particular phrase is, is an indication to us in the Old Testament that someone is about to do something foolish when someone goes down somewhere. And so it was that Abraham went down to Egypt to escape a a famine in Canaan. And he tells everyone in Egypt that his wife Sarah is actually his sister. And lo and behold, his wife Sarah catches the eye of Pharaoh of all people, the king of Egypt. And only by God's personal intervention are are Abraham and Sarah saved from disaster uh, at that time. And you would think after everything that happened in Egypt... Abraham would have learned a lesson or two. But here he is years later committing the same sin again. They go into the neighbouring land of Gerar, not far from the border of the promised land. It's not really spelled out in the text whether Abraham was acting sinfully on this occasion to leave the promised land. Perhaps, Perhaps not. But the main point is that once again he goes into foreign territory. and Once again he tells this lie. About the identity of Sarah. Why does Abraham commit the same sin again? Well, I want to ask that question, a couple of questions to ask of Abraham's habitual sin here. First of all, what caused Abraham to commit this sin? Well, just look at what Abraham says to Abimelech in verse 13 by way of explanation. Verse 13. This is Abraham speaking. He says, When God Cause me to wander from my father's house. And notice there, by the way, I don't want to read too much into the text, but it's almost as, as if Abraham's, you know, almost casting blame on God, the way he says it there. It's not that he says, God called me and made promises to me. God caused me to wander from my father's house. I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Now, we can't be 100% sure, but the strong implication of Abraham's words there is that he's been rehearsing this lie about Sarah everywhere they've gone over the years. That at every place we go, he told Sarah to say, this is my brother. And so it could be that this didn't just happen the twice that it's recorded in Genesis, friends, but that 
Abraham did this many times over the years. And Genesis only tells us about the two times where he didn't quite get away with it. But why? What, what, what ultimately was causing Abraham to routinely tell this lie? Well, look what else he tells Abimelech in verse 11. Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. What ultimately, friends, caused Abraham to tell this lie was fear and a lack of faith. Fear and a lack of faith. He says there that he thought to himself, they will kill me because of my wife. Well, for one thing, he doesn't know for sure that that would happen. For another thing, that is absolutely the worst possible case scenario. And for another thing, most importantly, it shows no faith in the promises that God had made to Abraham when he first called him to follow him. Back in Genesis 12, verse 3, when God first called him, he said, I will bless those who bless you. And listen, him who dishonors you, I will curse. And what God's saying there is that if anyone does anything to Abraham, God will actually do far worse to them. Him who dishonors you. Well, that could just mean someone maybe insults Abraham. Well, if anyone does so much as that to Abraham, God is going to curse them. God is going to do far worse to them than they could ever have done to Abraham. That was God's promise to his covenant partner. The one through whom he's going to bring all these blessings. But instead of trusting in that promise, Abraham here in his anxiety and in his self-reliance jumps ahead in his mind to the worst case scenario and panics and sins and lies. Abraham might have seen a wonderful display of God's mighty power in response to his faith had he had faith in this promise of God. What I mean is that if Abraham had had the courage to go into some place and tell everyone, yes, this beautiful woman is actually my wife. And if someone had then tried to make a move for Sarah or had threatened Abraham's life, what might God have done to protect Abraham? And Abraham could have given thanks and praised God with a clean conscience and said, here's God protecting me just as he promised and rewarding my faith. Instead, Abraham chose to live in fear. And he did, do God see, he, he did see God do great and incredible things for him in this passage. But God did those things in spite of Abraham's fear. Not to reward Abraham's faith. So what caused Abraham to sin? It was fear and a lack of faith. But what was the impact of Abraham's sin? Well consider the impact of his sin first of all on his witness. Mentioned already, verse 11, Abraham tries to explain himself to Abimelech. He says that he thought to himself, there is no fear of God in this place. These people don't know my God. These people don't have a, a holy fear of my God. They don't know what my God has to say about marriage and adultery. So I better just pull the wool over their eyes. In actual fact, the pagans in this passage, in a way, they almost show more reverence and respect for God than Abraham does. Abimelech and his people immediately respond 
When God comes and speaks to Abimelech in this dream, they immediately respond with holy fear and wanting to put things right as quick as they can. Look at verse 8. So Abimelech arose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. They believed, they, they believed this. They showed holy fear and respect for Abraham's God. <coughs> and actually it's emphasized to us all throughout this passage that had Abimelech known that Sarah was Abraham's wife, he would never have taken her from him. Historical evidence from the time and place, this ancient Near Eastern world that Abraham was living in, uh, there are historical artifacts that would suggest that adultery was in fact a crime, that it was treated as an act of gross disrespect, even by pagans in the ancient world. You didn't just go and take some other uh, wealthy, influential man's wife. That was an act of total disrespect to that wealthy, influential man. They didn't know Abraham's God, but like all human beings, despite their sin, they had some sense of right and wrong. Abraham was meant to be the one to come and be a blessing to the nations. That was what God had promised him. He's going to be a blessing to the nations. Instead, he comes to Abimelech and he lies to him. He causes terrible hardship for him, as becomes becomes clear later in the passage. And it leaves Abimelech saying to Abraham in verse 9, What have you done to us? Why did you do this? Abraham hasn't brought blessing. He's brought curse. Now again, as we come to consider in a moment, God overruled. God revealed himself to Abimelech in a way that made up for any poor witnessing on Abraham's part. But how embarrassing... How humbling and convicting must this whole incident have been for Abraham to be called out by a pagan, an unbeliever. But then too, think about the impact that this must have had, this habitual sin over the years, the impact that it would have had on Abraham's marriage. Sadly, there isn't really any evidence that Abraham and Sarah had a particularly good marriage. Between the incident in Egypt all those years before, which was probably where Hagar came from because Hagar was an Egyptian. And then the incident with Hagar that we thought about several weeks ago and the whole mess created there. And now this. And surely it took a toll on their marriage. We saw in chapter 18 that perhaps there's reason to think that Abraham had never even shared with Sarah the promise God had made to him about the birth of a son. And that was One of the reasons God turned up and gave that promise specifically to Sarah in chapter 18 because perhaps her husband had never told her about it. And the evidence suggests there was a lack of closeness and a lack of trust and affection at times between them. Now granted they are going to have a son together, Isaac, as we'll see God willing next week. And what a joy and a blessing that must have been for them when he came along. But that didn't change the fact that Abraham and Sarah had some difficult days together in their marriage, partly if not entirely because of this regular habitual sin that Abraham kept falling into. Some liberal commentators who wouldn't share our same high view of scripture and the 
completion and perfection of Scripture. They, some of them actually suggest that with Genesis 20, what we have is someone has just made a mistake. Someone has included the same story twice, but they've just jumbled up some of the details the second time round. What would be the point, these liberal commentators suggest, for having two such similar stories in the Bible? Well, actually, there's a very good and very simple reason why we have two very similar stories from Abraham's life. And friends, it's because human beings often repeat the same sins over and over again. I find it very easy to believe that Abraham committed the same sin more than once because that's certainly the pattern in my life and in all of our lives. This is not the case of the Bible. This is not a case of the Bible telling one story twice and mixing up the details. This is a case of the Bible holding up a mirror in front of us and saying, isn't this exactly what we're all like? There are certain sins, certain sinful habits that just keep coming up again and again and again. It's like weeds in the garden. You think you have them dealt with. And a few weeks later, there they are again. And for some Christians, it may be an issue of temper. We get annoyed far too easily, far too often, over far too many things. Decisions of the referee that we don't like, either if we're in our living room watching on TV or playing the match ourselves. Or the house is too noisy or the traffic is too slow or the colleague is too stupid and off we go in a rage. For some of us it may be laziness. There's work to be done but there's also a phone with a social media feed to scroll through or video games to play and work keeps, keeps getting shoved aside. Maybe it's a lack of self-control in regard to food or alcohol or sexual desire. The reality, sadly, is that all of us have some kind of lingering sinful tendencies. And we need to be mindful of that each, as each new day begins, friends. Confess those habitual sins. Read scripture and, and make our prayers to God. And, and even confess those habitual sins to someone close to us, a, a good friend, parent, a spouse, and say, could you please pray for me, particularly with this area of my life? So what was the impact of Abraham's sin? A compromised witness to some degree, and perhaps to a more difficult home life. But even worse than that was the fact that Abraham was threatening the covenant plans of God. And that's why God in his grace intervened so powerfully. In this episode. So having thought about the reality of routine sin. We want to think secondly about God's grace greater than our sin. God's grace greater than our sin. Again let's just zoom out for a moment from Genesis 20. And remember the bigger picture of the story with Abraham here. That God has made a covenant promise to him. That his line is going to go on and on and on. And that the line of Abraham is going, to be, is going to bring blessing to the nations forever. And that depends then upon Abraham having a legitimate son. And even though Abraham is now 100 years old and Sarah is 90 years old, God has repeated to them very recently in Genesis 18, you're going to have a son. In fact, your son is going to come along within a year, God had said to them. So we're now on the countdown like when the good news comes through that 
Uh, I loved what, that someone is pregnant and we begin get, we get the, the due date and then people start speculating about whether the baby will come on the due date or a day or two before the due date or a week or two after the due date and everyone's getting excited and everyone's on the countdown. That's why Abraham's sin in this chapter is all the more foolish. By allowing Sarah to go off into the house of Abimelech, Abraham is risking the possibility that any son born to Sarah is not legitimate. He's risking questions. (coughs) Questions being asked about the parentage of any child that Sarah has in the near future. To say nothing of, again, as we said, the emotional and spiritual impact of this, of his wife going into the home of another man. But it's that threat to the covenant promises of God that is why God steps in powerfully and decisively in this mess that Abraham has made. God will not allow Abraham's failures to ruin the promises and plans that God had for Abraham. God speaks to Abimelech in a a dream. Here's God. This is how God gave revelation in in those times in particular. Uh, He says to Abimelech in verse 3, Behold, you're a dead man because of the woman you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Look what God says as well in verse 6. I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And look, it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Emphasized all through the text that despite whatever intentions Abimelech may have had with Sarah, he actually has not touched her. God has not allowed him to touch her because God will keep his covenant intact. Notice, by the way, verse 6 God says that Abimelech, uh, that had Abimelech touched Sarah, notice the wording, it would have been sin against me, God says. Sin against me mentioned earlier that in the ancient world, even the pagans around Abraham, many of them did have laws against adultery, but that was not out of any concern for what their idols thought about adultery. There was no kind of belief that their gods cared about what they did at all. It was, adultery was seen as, a, as a, a mark of disrespect against the husband of the wife of the woman that you took. But the living God, friends, the true holy God of Abraham who has created men and women and marriage, he cares about adultery. And all sin is first and foremost sin against him. Remember David's words in Psalm 51, his psalm of repentance for his adultery. David had sinned against Uriah. He had sinned against Bathsheba in a sense by calling for and taking her and dishonoring her in this way but he says in Psalm 51 verse 4 against you you only have I sinned his sin was first and foremost against a holy God and so we can excuse or minimize or justify our sin all we want our culture can redefine marriage if it wants to and even what a woman is or when human life begins or whatever else but at the end of the day it is sin Sin against a holy God. And God confronts Abimelech with his sin here with the purpose of protecting his covenant promises. In fact, we're told at the very end of the passage, verse 18, 
Just look what it says. The Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Sarah is the wife of God's chosen covenant partner, Abraham. And because of that, because they must have a legitimate child together, God goes so far as to close all the wombs in Abimelech's household. (coughs) As a warning to Abimelech, And to leave absolutely no doubt in a few months' time about whose son Isaac is. God had plans for Abraham and Sarah. Plans that couldn't be undone even by Abraham's most cringeworthy failures. I mentioned earlier, Abraham could have gotten to see God work wonderfully, miraculously on his behalf in response to his faith instead of his fear. But in fact, God works miraculously and graciously on Abraham's behalf anyway. Because he will keep his covenant promises. Ralph Davis points out that this episode gives us reason to believe in the indestructibility of the church. Perhaps you think that sounds silly. Of of course the church is is not indestructible. Look, Look what happens. Some churches sometimes close or... Some churches suffer persecution or some churches sadly are ruined by by the sin of one man. Perhaps even the the pastor falls from grace and it ruins the reputation of the church. Or you look at the massacring of the church by Islamic jihadists or by Hindu extremists in India or by the communists in China locking them up. Or we think, look how sleepy the church is in the secular West today and how hardened our culture is to the gospel. Look at us individuals. We're so inconsistent. We struggle along. Uh, Things weighing us down. Health concerns. Family concerns. Our witness is so imperfect at times. Well of course the indestructibility of the church doesn't mean that we're spared all health. Or even loss of life. or from persecution. The indestructibility of the church friends means that none of these things will ultimately wipe out the church. The church has been battered by these same challenges for 2,000 years in the New Testament era and for longer before that in the Old Testament era and we're still here because God is still keeping his covenant promises to Abraham. Even our familiar failures and our apparent defeats won't stop God from being faithful. Psalm 105 verse 12 says, When they were few in number, Of little account and sojourners in the land, wandering from nation to nation, God allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones. We are God's anointed ones, anointed by the Holy Spirit, not perfect yet, still struggling along with those regular routine sins, holding forth an imperfect witness. But God will protect and God will build his church. What a motivation, friends, that should be for us to act in faith and not in fear. And to be regularly repenting of sin and improving our witness and making our faith known to a lost and needy world. So we've seen the reality of regular sin in the heart of the believer. We've seen that God's grace is greater than our sin. And thirdly and finally, in this point, on a, different, on a different tack, so to speak, but the last thing I want to highlight to you from this passage is the power of a praying saint. 
the power of a praying saint. Look what God tells Abimelech to do to put things right. Verse 7. He says, Now then return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. And then look on down at verse 17. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech. So that would suggest that God had prevented Abimelech from touching Sarah by perhaps afflicting him with some kind of illness or disease. And also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of of Abimelech's house because of Sarah. This is the first time that Abraham is ever described as a prophet in the Bible. Meaning in this case that he has a, a, a special relationship with God. That God speaks to him and he speaks to God in, in a special way. And so when Abraham prays, Abimelech is healed. And all the women in his house are healed and can conceive and bear children. And so this whole episode, we assume, must have played out over at least a couple of weeks Because the household of Abimelech realised that something's wrong. uh, Something isn't right in our household. And Abimelech himself is struck down, we assume, with illness. And now all of that is put right. Because Abraham prays. And again, friends, this is God showing Abraham what could happen as Abraham made his way around this world. He was not supposed to live in fear of his neighbours. He was supposed to be a blessing to them. Genesis 12 verse 2. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Here's one way that Abraham could be a blessing for others. By praying for them. Abraham prays and God listens. And through Abraham God channels his blessing to those around him. We might not be prophets today, friends, but we are children of Abraham by faith. And the ultimate blessing that came through Abraham, the the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises, of course, was the coming of Abraham's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, if we belong to Christ by faith, he has called for us to be channels of his blessing out to the world around us, just as Abraham was supposed to be a channel of blessing To his world. And there are so many ways that we can do that. Chiefly of course through proclaiming the gospel. But in many other practical ways as well. Not least through praying for our nearest and dearest. And for those around us who don't yet know the Lord. And I do wonder friends was God not teaching Abraham a very personal lesson here. Abraham prayed. And wombs were opened. Is God perhaps not encouraging Abraham to realise here, pray for your wife and her womb will be opened too. The three great patriarchs of the Old Testament, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, all of them were explicitly promised by God that they would have children. All of them had wives who experienced infertility. But of those three men, only one of them prayed for his wife. Genesis 25 verse 21. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, for she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah his wife conceived. Now I need to be clear here. Abraham, Isaac and Jacob were covenant patriarchs. 
They had been explicitly promised children as part of the unfolding of God's larger plan of redemptive history and salvation at that time. So we don't draw direct parallels to couples today who experience the the grief and pain of infertility. And we don't just say to them, you just need to pray more. But there is a principle for us to apply nonetheless, friends, that Christian husbands, fathers, wives, mothers, Christian men and Christian women, whether single or married, young or old, rich or poor, we are to be channels of blessing to one another and to our world. We're to pray for the needs of one another and our family members and our congregations and our communities. And instead of just sleepwalking into habitual sins, We're to pray that God by his spirit would enable us to display more and more of his love and joy and peace and patience and the rest of the fruit of the spirit to one another. We're to be displaying and speaking about Christ to our needy world. And the encouragement of this passage is that our sins don't entirely scupper our service. Our sin must be repented of and dealt with. God will not bless Christians excusing or hiding or minimizing sin. But once repented of, our sin doesn't have to be held against us anymore. And it doesn't stop us from going on and serving God in whatever ways we can and being channels of God's blessing in whatever ways we can for others. Look what happens to Abraham in this passage. Even though he exercises fear instead of faith, Even though he has to go through the embarrassment of being called out by a pagan, he still ends up better off than he was at the beginning of this episode. Verse 14 says that Abimelech gave him sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants. In verse 15 he says that Abraham, (coughs) Abimelech says that Abraham can lay claim to any part of Abimelech's land that he wants to. And that's actually the first time in the story of Abraham that he's invited to legally claim land as his own, albeit land that is just the other side of the promised land of Canaan. But is that not as well a little reminder from God to Abraham? I've promised you land. You're going to get land put into your hands. In verse 16, Abimelech gives Sarah a thousand pieces of silver A thousand uh, shekels some of your translations will have. That's a huge sum of money. When Abraham does finally purchase a piece of Canaan. It only costs him 400 pieces of silver. God through Abimelech has just provided Abraham. With the down payment money he needs. to To legally lay claim to the promised land. Like God is saying to Abraham, Abraham, I can either bring about all the good things I promised for you while you sit and worry and are fearful and tell lies all day, or I can do it for you as you exercise greater faith in those promises. God's grace is greater than our sin, and it's greater than our fears. One of my favourite verses will be coming too soon in Philippians 4 verse 19. My God will supply all your needs. Not necessarily all your preferences. Not necessarily all your wishes or dreams. But my God will supply all your needs. Out of the abundance of his riches 
in Christ Jesus. So why don't we pray more often with more faith and less fear for whatever it is that we need or our spouse needs or our children need or our church needs or our world needs? Is there some routine, regular sin that you need to repent of today? Is there someone you need courage to witness to? Is there a decision looming or a crisis dragging on or a worry that's weighing you down? Cast your cares upon the Lord and he will sustain you. Look at ourselves with our weak faith, our struggles with sin, our poor witness to the world. And we would say with Paul, wretched man, wretched woman that I am. But the psalmist says, the Lord will not forsake his people. The Lord will not abandon his heritage. That's what we deserve. We deserve like Abraham, for God to simply say, you have had your chances. I've made you these promises. You failed again. I'm done with you. But God doesn't do that. And he won't do that. He won't forsake us. Why? Because instead of forsaking us who deserve it, his son who didn't deserve it was forsaken on the cross. Jesus, who had never acted in fear, who had always acted in faith and obedience to his Father, cried out, Father, forgive them. And Jesus offered up exactly what was required for our failures to be forgiven, his own precious blood. Wretched man that I am, Paul said, but who comes to the rescue? Who shows grace to failures like Abraham and you and me? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.